Experiment, a stream of consciousness sermon on tentatio, or two ways to read a psalm. Our text for meditation for this 18th Sunday after Trinity is on our psalm for today, Psalm 34, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Now, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's one of those, well, uncommon Sundays. One of those Sundays where you wonder why the pastor decided to preach on the psalm instead of the Old Testament, New Testament, or Gospel readings. After all, the lectionary usually provides a common theme for the main three readings, but it seems that this Sunday, the pastor had a blister pop in his brain that forced him to ignore all of that. Eureka, he shouts in his study, I'll preach on the psalm for some reason. In fact, for this Sunday, I decided to include the entirety of the text. Our reading, according to the lectionary, starts at verse 8, but I wanted the whole thing. Because there's more to it than just, your preacher gets weird sometimes. We often think of the Psalms as something of a greatest hits of worship music in the Bible, but they contain far more than just that. In fact, if you ever study Lutheran hymnody, it's generally understood that Lutheran hymns are intended to teach the faith while also engaging with it. We get this notion from the Psalms, which have a rich current of theological instruction and divine wisdom in them. 
so much so that the Lutheran reformers relied on many verses from various psalms to make their case in the Augsburg Confession, as well as other documents from the Book of Concord. Occasionally, the minister sees one of these divine hymns, and the message given is too good, too juicy to give up. And today there is great value, since the only way you'll understand today's psalm is through tentatio, struggling and wrestling with it until it shows you the treasures it has for you. So today I want to demonstrate that with a bit of stream-of-consciousness writing and preaching. You see, my friends, our selected reading answers a very tough question which most people shudder to even ask. Where is God when it hurts? For that matter, it answers the question of where God is when the wicked seem to triumph, when our opponents assail us, when terrible things happen all over the place and we feel like he has let us down. So Tentatio, struggling with the text. Before we see where the answer is, let's wrestle. Let's go ahead and read this the way someone might who is in a bitter and dark season. At first, our psalm sounds triumphant. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It says, those who fear him have no lack. They lack no good thing. And it makes much ado about deliverance. We read these sweet words of promise and immediately find ourselves feeling conflicted. We're going through hard times, aren't we? So why aren't we seeing this deliverance? How come I'm feeling like there is lack? Did I do something wrong? Did I displease God that I have these enemies trying to destroy my life? The psalm speaks to me of blessing, but the good things it promises don't seem to apply to me. Well, maybe we're just being ungrateful. I'm sure there's many a pastor out there who would tell us that if only we counted our blessings, we would see how much God is blessing us and delivering us mightily every day. I imagine such pastors having the biggest, smuggest, poop-eating, punchable smiles on their self-satisfied faces as they tell us that we're just thankless fools. Men that say this sort of thing are so far removed from real struggle and pain, or perhaps deluding themselves into thinking they're happy, that you can safely ignore their admonition. I've seen seminary presidents that talk like this, oh, go ahead, Professor, tell me why I'm ungrateful as you sit with your six-figure salary and your perfect little family and all the respect and admiration of your denomination. Why, the only problem is me not being thankful enough to understand this psalm. Go ahead, pirate of souls, sitting upon your hoard of wealth, pilfered from the faithful, tell me I'm an ingrate. That's not the answer for 99% of us, why we would struggle with the triumphant tone of this psalm and the promises of blessing it gives and how we wonder why it doesn't seem to apply to us. We do thank God. We do our best to keep a good attitude. We go to church and sing praises to God and try our darndest to be thankful. For people going through a rough time, ingratitude is not why we're miserable. Oh no, the real reason we don't feel these blessings is right there in the text, isn't it? What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. 
Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. There it is. I cannot stress this enough that a large part of this psalm tells us that its treasury of blessings is conditional. Do you want to see good and live long? Stop being bad and start doing good. Be 100% honest. Don't say anything bad or wrong and go out seeking peace instead of conflict. What's a better way of saying that? Well, from Matthew 5.48, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The reason we don't feel these blessings is because we understand all too well that we don't deserve it. The psalmist, King David, writes, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. We read that. He is also the one who wrote in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. On account of that, we can safely say that there is no way by our own merit that God should hear our cries. After all, it says affliction will slay the wicked. And indeed, I feel afflicted, don't you? To the contrary, there is only one to whom this entire psalm can be applied in the positive sense, and that is our Lord Jesus. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. St. John quotes that in his gospel, by the way, John 19, verse 36. We know this psalm applies directly to our Lord Christ because the apostles saw that it was prophetic and fulfilled on the cross. And so we rejoice that Christ who suffered on our account was delivered from the grave and rose again. He who perfectly spoke only good, who sought only good, he who is goodness himself has received all blessing. Now there's a sinful part of our hearts that might say the following. And don't worry, I know everyone is afraid to say it, so I will. Remember, we're going through tentatio here, struggling with the text and wrestling with it, doing the hard kind of devotion that makes us far better Christians. But there is a sinful part of our hearts that we have to address that just might opine, if we can be honest. Well, good for you, Jesus. Must be nice being so perfect that the Father has given you all these wonderful things. But for me, I have to get up, go to work. Work a second shift taking care of my kids. I have housework to do. And then I have troubled friends that I have to help. I have to dodge getting canceled in a hostile and insane culture. My government hates me and my people. And on top of that, I have to spend all this time going to church so the pastor can tell me that I'm a guilty sinner. You own the universe, Lord. You have all blessing. I'm lucky if I can afford a sixer of beer and a pack of smokes. Where's my blessing? Oh, and then comes the chorus of idiot pastors and zealous, holier-than-thou believers, all here to play the part of Elihu in our little Job story. Oh, they'll say, God has blessed you, you blaspheming fool. Be grateful. And I'm sure they just love to say that. And they immediately go into the blessing list, don't they? That they think we don't know about. What about your spouse, they'll ask. Ah, uh, yes, the roommate that I take care of who's too busy for me. What about the kids you love, they might ask. Well, most of the time I see them, they're in trouble for misbehaving or they're screaming at me. 
What about the clothes you have on, they'll ask. I'm wearing old clothes with holes in them because I can't afford new ones. Uh, the roof over your head? Now they're getting a little desperate. But the taxes on this roof are sucking up my money, and I had to use my credit card for repairs. The food in your stomach? Now they're scratching the bottom of the barrel. I'm not exactly eating foie gras and caviar here. We've all been in that place where every blessing is this mixed bag, and we hardly have the opportunity to think about the good before the bad comes in and overshadows everything. So like Elihu in the book of Job, these well-meaning accusers throw up their hands and just decide we're bad people for complaining. And at this point, we're depressed and our faith is under assault. So we have to reconcile with the text. In asking God where he is when it hurts, in reading this way in Tentatio, we've allowed ourselves to feel down. We've allowed ourselves a moment's self-pity to reflect on what the worldly, frustrated part of ourselves would say about this psalm. But after struggling with it like this, what do we do? How do we approach ourselves? There's a distinct feeling that we are unloved by our Lord, unworthy of his blessings, let alone his salvation, and it feels like God has sent an army of people who don't get what we're going through to tell us we are bad people for going through it. And of course, they are unable to relate to us, or else they would have done what Job's friends and family did at the end of Job's book. When we seriously engage in struggle with the text and compare the text to our own lives, and we have these feelings crop up, some of them from our old Adam, some of them from the devil, and some other thoughts from legitimate pain on our parts, there's a temptation to just sit in depression for a while and hope it goes away. Maybe I'll get that magic good attitude that the Elihu people want. Maybe things will get better. Maybe it will become more apparent that God keeps his word. Sitting down and being sad will not help you, though, beloved. You know what will? Praying, taking a deep breath, and reading the text again with fresh eyes. When the devil brings you a wrestling match, you don't quit and lick your wounds. You don't back down. Going back to the word is essential, so we keep going and keep studying until our faith is mature, and we have won this part of the good fight. And I offer to you, as a fruit of my own wrestling with the text, that the 18th verse is the most important here. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. A bit of context here. David wrote Psalm 34 before he was king, when he was delivered from the hand of Abimelech, or Achish, king of a Philistine city called Gath. Let's go ahead and read the whole account from 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15. And David rose and fled that day from Saul, and went to Ashish the king of Gath. And the servants of Ashish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart, and was much afraid of Ashish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Ashish said to his servants, 
Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So ends the reading. David fled from King Saul's insane and murderous pursuit all the way to the Philistine country. Maybe David thought that since King Saul was enemies with the Philistines, Ashish would offer him safety. But the servants of the Philistine royals start talking about how David has songs written about him. Songs about how many Philistines he killed. Can you imagine the fear that dawns on you when you walk right into a crowd of people who have a bone to pick with you? That hate you? Now can you imagine the terror that would dawn upon you knowing that you couldn't run away back home? Saul still wanted him dead, after all. When David writes, This poor man cried and the Lord heard him, that tells us, Sure, he pretended madness to get King Ashish to disregard him, but he was only half pretending. He cried out to the Lord during this time, likely with tears running down his face, as he bemoaned the humiliation and total isolation he was experiencing. If anyone could have complained as we did earlier, David has double the right to do so. But he doesn't complain here. Instead, he praises our Lord and finds great comfort in his deliverance. After he makes it out alive, he writes these verses with a distinct repetition. Let's look at these repeated phrases. I sought the Lord. And he answered me, verse 4. Those who look to him are radiant, verse 5. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, verse 6. He adds to this three more times. Verse 8, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. Verse 22, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Why would all this be, that God should deliver someone who cries out to him? Because of verse 18. Again, it says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That is why. When you go through hard times, where is our Lord? He is right next to you. He is there to hear your cry for deliverance. He is there waiting to take you into refuge. When times are difficult, God is right there waiting for you to reach out and seek him. If God is right next to you when times are difficult, and King David praises our Lord for being there in this manner, then it stands to reason that he penned this in part for our encouragement. The psalm does, in fact, apply to us. The man of God will have afflictions in this life. The psalm does not deny that at all. But his first response to these persecutions and troubles should be to seek God that he may be delivered. During this time, when he seeks God for his deliverance, he should also be pursuing righteousness, continuing to do his best to turn from evil and do good, that he may not sully his requests for refuge and salvation with his own sin. King David does not urge us to do righteous things and turn from evil because he wants to disqualify us from blessings. He urges us to do the right thing, because he cares about us, because he cares that we not earn more condemnation. Now, earlier I spoke on behalf of those who might have Christ envy. 
the feeling that Jesus has it easy on account of his already being perfect. But the verses in our reading that only apply to Jesus, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken, the verses extolling the blessings placed upon the righteous when we know only Jesus is truly righteous and so forth, these verses show them applying first to Christ, not only to him, with the exception of bone breaking, of course. We cannot forget that by faith, Jesus is our righteousness. His perfection is imputed to us by trusting in him. And no one has been more afflicted than he who took the wrath of the Father for our sakes. No one has ever trusted God more than our Lord Jesus. And nothing can make us pure except the blood of our Lord who died in our place so that we might reside in his. Thus King David writes, The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Our sins merit punishment and contempt, sure, but God redeems our lives that we may seek him in times of trouble. Yes, beloved, on account of Jesus, this psalm does apply to you. When times are difficult, David exhorts you to run to our Lord and seek him that he may be your help and shield. While doing so, he tells us to also seek obedience, that we may not incur his wrath while seeking his aid. But he encourages us that in our pains God is near and beckoning, that we may taste and see that he is good. Then we can be thankful in seeing all that the Lord has done for us. The psalm does not promise an easy life. It does not promise you heaven on earth, but it does promise you deliverance from God, whether in this life or in the next. He's telling you to hold on, for God is near and he cares for you. And with that, we reconcile with the text and rejoice that our Lord cares for us and loves us and gives us grace, even when it doesn't look like it. He's right there next to you. Now the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.